Father God, um, it doesn't make a difference how complete the notes are. I don't even know if it makes a difference how faithful a message is. We depend on your Holy Spirit. We depend upon your Spirit to give ears and eyes and, and soft hearts to those who hear and to give clarity and, and unction and humility and truth to those who speak. Father God, these, this is your son's church. Meet with us. Send your spirit to hover over the word, to, to cover over every place where my words are weak or inadequate and to bring truth home to the mind and the hearts of your people. We're going to cover a tough subject today, Lord. We, we often celebrate your son as Savior, and rightfully so. He, there, there's no other name like his name. He is a Savior. He is, he is above all. But he's also a judge. And at the end of the day, those who will not receive him as Savior will experience him as judge. And while we walk between those two times, between when the offer of salvation is held out and the time of judgment is promised, how do we pray and how do we live? There's help in your word to guide us in that. We want to be like your son. We want to be faithful to what you've called us to be. And to that end, I just pray that you will hover over the service this morning and help us understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Alexander Pope uh, was a, an English author and poet and satirist. Um, he was born in 1688. He died in 1744. Um, you probably think you've never heard of him, and you may not be familiar with the name, but I'm pretty sure you've probably heard some of what he wrote. He's, he is the second most quoted author in the English language behind Shakespeare. Uh, he's just not very well known by his name. Um, he wrote something that, uh, that's been on my mind this week a lot. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now, if I hadn't told you that came from Alexander Pope, you'd probably be thumbing through Proverbs about now looking for it. But it's not, it's a, it's a proverb, it's just not a biblical proverb, it's something that, that he wrote. Um, with minor alteration, it, it should sound familiar, <clears throat> because with minor alteration, it spawned a very famous song that's been covered by 150 or more different artists. Uh, you probably know most from Elvis Presley, but it's been covered by Casey Musgraves, Beck, the Lennon sisters, um, Perry Como, if you want to really date yourself, if you know who he is, um, uh, uh, Bob Dylan, Boyce Avenue, uh, Christy McVie from Fleetwood Mac, Bono did it, Pearl Jam did it. It is a well-known song that derives from that particular saying. See if you don't hear Elvis's voice. I won't try to sing it, but I'll just give you the first words. Wise men say only fools rush in. And you know the song, don't you? Beautiful song, great love song. Of course, of course, the guy doesn't really pay attention to his own counsel because he turns around and says, but I can't help falling in love with you, so I'm going to rush in anyway. It's a little bit of hypocrisy, but it, it's a beautiful song. It's been on my mind because I want us to consider um, a genre 
of song, a category of song this morning that it would be foolish to rush into. Uh, it's a difficult genre. It's an easily misunderstood genre. Uh, it's, it's the category of psalms known as imprecatory psalms. They're the psalms where the, the writer actually prays down a curse upon his enemies and the enemies of God. There's a fair number of them. There's 14 relatively explicit uh, imprecatory psalms in the Psalter. Uh, there's another 24 um, somewhat more minor examples where one or two or three verses is given to imprecation. There's a total of 98 verses uh, in the Psalter that are imprecatory. At a minimum, uh, you're looking at 10% of the Psalter, if you define it very narrowly. If you define it a little more broadly, you're looking at almost a quarter of it uh, that has um, at least some imprecatory statement in it. However you cut it, uh, this category of psalm makes up a prominent part of the book. Well, Now, to date, we have, um, we've, I think this is the 11th, maybe 12th sermon on psalms since we started. We have heeded Alexander Pope's advice, and we have not rushed in to uh, the dangerous territory where wise men have actually feared to tread. We have uh, we've passed over nine imprecatory psalms so far, and we've done it because we recognize the difficulty in preaching them. Um, we recognize the, the danger of uh, interpreting them wrongly and stirring up kind of a misplaced nationalism where God is on our side, right? Joshua fell prey to that same temptation. If you're familiar with the story back in Joshua 5, um, they're in the promised land. And uh, one night, a, a man with a sword appears before Joshua, and Joshua knows this is not an ordinary man. And his first question is, are you for us or for our, our enemy? Who, who, whose side are you on? And you know the answer. The guy just says, no. <laughs> That's not an answer. But it is telling Joshua, you asked the wrong question. I'm on the Lord's side we very quickly can fall into that error of Joshua and say God's on our side, right? Completely, regardless. Joshua wanted a more simple answer than the Lord is willing to give him. So we can approach imprecatory psalms with kind of a misplaced sense of self-justification. Of course, I'm on the right side of this question and they're on the wrong side of this question. Um, we can also make the mistake of approaching them uh, without noting the tension between this sort of psalm and the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How, how do you pray a curse down upon someone, which is the hallmark of an imprecatory psalm, as a New Testament believer whom Jesus is your Lord, and he says you should pray for those people. It, it's a tension, and it's the kind of tension that can get preachers in trouble. So pray I don't get in trouble. I don't want to exalt Jesus and silence the Psalms, and I don't want to preach the imprecatory Psalms and pay no attention to Jesus. Somehow, you've got to be able to hold those two together because the same father in heaven Jesus says you, you want to pray for your enemy so that you're like your father in heaven 
Well, your father in heaven was also the psalmist's father in heaven. It's not a simple issue. There has to be some careful, I would say nuanced way to read and exalt the truth of an imprecatory psalm. That's inspired scripture. And at the same time, say yes and amen to Jesus. Um, I think a number of people have found that way. There's some good people that have walked before us in this way and, uh, and given us some, some help. So I, I look to pass that on to you. I look to pass on what I've learned from my own study here. <clears throat> but first, I want to pass on a word from Sam Storms. Many of you will know that name, Good Brother. Uh, he's on the board, I believe, of both Gospel Coalition and on Desiring God. He's a long-term pastor in the Midwest. Here's what he said. He said, Imprecations are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. The psalmist prayed this way because of his deep sensitivity to the ugliness of evil. Perhaps the chief reason why he wasn't bothered by prayers of imprecation, and we are, is that he was bothered by sin, and we aren't. It is frightening to think that we can stand in the presence of evil and not be moved to pray as the psalmist did. That's a hard word, isn't it? Maybe the problem with the imprecatory psalms he's saying and the reason that we are so uncomfortable with them is that we are not as bothered by sin as the psalmist was. That's the question that I believe hanging a bit over us as we work through our text today. We're going to be focusing on Psalm 83. It is the 12th and final psalm as far as the order that they appear in of Asaph. Asaph, we are told, was one of the worship leaders in Israel. Um, he wrote 12 psalms. Uh, we read the first 15 verses of Psalm 50 as our elder reading. That, that's a psalm of Asaph. He doesn't appear again until Psalm 73, and then we get all the remaining 11 psalms in a block. Somebody saw fit to put them together. It, it's speculated that's probably Ezra the scribe who did that. <clears throat> we don't know for sure, but whoever did it, it, um, it puts before us a question. Did they have a reason for doing that? Is there a reason that we read through 10, I'm sorry, 11 consecutive songs of the same man in the order that they were collected? And I think the answer to that question is, is yes. And if it's true, and I think it is, then the way to prepare for Psalm 83 is knowing what was said in the prior 10. Otherwise, you're reading the last chapter of a book. They're put together for a reason. Now, I'm not going to preach to you 10 sermons leading into Psalm 83, but I will summarize those 10 psalms in one or two or three sentences very quickly. And I hope and I pray you see the connection and you see the beauty and you see the story unfolding that then provides a proper backdrop as we move into an imprecatory psalm. Um, the collection of Asaph begins with Psalm 73. Um, and what marks that song uh, is not the threats from out there. That's going to mark the rest of them for the most part. But we begin in Psalm 73 with a problem in here. The problem in Psalm 73 is not the sin of other people. The problem in Psalm 73 is the corruption of Israel. Um, Asaph looks around. 
and he sees people that are evil and wicked and yet they're popular and prospering and it drives him crazy he finally goes into the temple and he comes out satisfied that you know God is going to take care of this in time and so he can move on well what Asaph is struggling with in his day um, it, it really is a timeless problem and there's a reason why um, we're told things like judgment begins with the people of God because we are prone to look outside and see what's wrong with other people and not so quick to look inside and see what's wrong with me and what's wrong with us and so it's an ongoing problem Asaph encountered it in Psalm 73 Charles Spurgeon almost 3,000 years later encountered it and he said this you notice in these days of boasted liberality and pretended charity that the charity is only for error but for the old gospel there is no charity Spurgeon was dealing with controversy in his, in his own day and he said man the church is really patient in, in London where he's preaching with all these errors but they're not very patient with the old gospel the true gospel it's an ongoing problem Asaph encountered it Spurgeon encountered it. Well, you move into Psalm 74, and there's a consequence for what happened in Psalm 73, because what marks Psalm 74 is, he says, the prophet is heard no more. There's prophetic silence now in the land of Israel. They haven't listened to God. They have scorned him. They've treated sin lightly, and God says, I'm not talking to you for a while. Nevertheless, Psalm 75, moving on. Asaph voices confidence that God will judge rightly. Uh, he may not be speaking to them in that moment in a prophet. Uh, things look grim without, as we'll see. There are people gathering around Israel that intend them harm. Uh, there's still problems inside the body, uh, but God is still on his throne. He is still a righteous judge. Therefore, Psalm 76 calls upon the people to keep their vows to God. Don't give up press on. God is faithful. You keep your vows, he will be faithful to you as well. They're, they're worried about the Assyrians. They're worried about the Moabites. They're worried about the Philistines. And Asaph says, no, fear God and keep your vows to God. Well, things don't get any better. Psalm 77 finds Asaph so troubled, he says, that I cannot speak. And his only comfort in Psalm 77 is beginning to look back at all God's faithfulness. God has been so good to this nation and his people for so long that while it seems he's silent now, and while things look terrible now, we have a history with God. Psalm 78 picks up exactly the same theme. It's a psalm that Bob preached last week. It is uh, a very prominent psalm in this collection because it's right in the middle. Five psalms precede it. Five psalms follow it from Asaph. This is the central one. It's the longest one. It's 72 verses. And the central theme really is this. The people have been faithless, and God is faithful. It's a bad time in Psalm 78. A lot of people are dead, uh, including the priests. Um, but God, God is still faithful. And it says, he, he mentions, he goes... I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to raise somebody up. It won't be from Benjamin, and it will be from Judah. And he will deliver and shepherd his people. And so you've got messianic 
promises kind of uh, in a not too shadowy form there in Psalm 78. But apparently that promise is down the road. So in Psalm 79, we're reminded the temple is destroyed. The corpses of many in Israel are just laying out in the field and the birds are eating them. Um, Those who are not dead are prisoners and the cry goes up in that psalm, how long, Lord? How long will this last? Well, Psalm 80 doesn't answer the question of how long, but it does say how it will end because it speaks of a heavenly shepherd, one enthroned above the cherubim. He is at God's right hand and that is the one who will save and restore. In, in the midst of this calamity that's befallen Israel and Judah, a calamity that came about because they did not treat God as holy, their rescue has nevertheless been very graciously promised. And with that in mind, Psalm 81 then is another call. Listen to God. Walk in His ways. It's a call to repentance for the people. And what's interesting We're almost to Psalm 83. Now, what's interesting is that we've we've gone through nine psalms, and Asaph has yet to say, would you do something about those people? From Psalm 73 on, it's been, we need to clean our own house. Work needs to be done in our community. We need to keep our vows. We need to be right with God. It began in Psalm 73, the problem where they winked at sin in their own camp. Then they lost their prophetic voice that would call them back. Now the temple is destroyed. Thousands lay dead in the street. The rest are in captivity, and their only hope is in God sending the shepherd that he has promised to rescue and to guide them. And I, I just want to say, I think there's remarkable coherency. I think when you, rather than just pick a song here and a psalm there, when you actually read a collection of them by the same author put together by somebody, you see a story start to emerge. You, you see theology start to emerge. God is holy. He's faithful. He's working in this people. He's, he's reminding them of their own story and their own problem. And he's not going to let destruction have the last word. So nine psalms now. They were kind of looking inward, calling the people to, to trust God and obey God. And now the 10th Psalm, Psalm 82, is one where God turns to warn the rulers, the people out there, and say, watch it. Um, there are questions whether these are heavenly rulers or earthly rulers, and the answer, I think, may well be both. In any case, God reminds them that their time of rule is limited, They are to repent. They are to judge justly. They are to care for the destitute. They are to rescue the needy because they are going to die, he says, like every other prince before them. And that warning finally to the nations out there brings us to Psalm 83. It's the last psalm. It divides fairly neatly into two sections, the first being verses 1 through 8. They're going to describe the situation that, um, uh, that's alluded to in the prior psalm and that, that kind of is, is in the background of all the others there. Uh, describes the situation. And then in the second half, uh, verses 9 through 18, uh, Asaph's going to begin to pray. And, and he's going to call down imprecations, if you will, upon the people that are surrounding them. Here's how the psalm goes. Verse 1. O God, do not remain quiet. 
Do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. If you recall, Psalm 74 said the prophetic voice had ended. God has been quiet. Uh, There's no one around who can answer the question, what next or how long? And so Asaph pleads with God not only to end his silence, but to end it with action. He says, O God, do not be still. Things are bad. Asaph fears you're going to get worse. And so he's literally begging God to both speak and to act. And verse 2 then begins to pick up with a specific situation, some details about what's happening that causes Asaph to pray in the way he does. Verse 2, For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. I don't know if you noticed, but there, there's a fourfold repetition of you and your in the text. That pronoun is referring back to verse 1, where God is in view. As bad as the situation is for the people, Asaph understands that what's happening is ultimately between the nations and God. He almost sets himself aside and sets the people aside. He says, hey, he doesn't say, rescue me. He says, things are happening to your people, God. Real flesh and blood people, they're being opposed, they're hated, they're slaughtered, but there's a greater reality behind that, and the reality behind that, we're told, is the hatred of God. And the hatred of God, not just in Asaph's life, but I would argue in every age, shows up in the hatred of his people, the persecution of his people in every age. There are forces that want the name of Israel remembered no more, we're told. That's a description of genocide, and it's a good reason for Asaph to cry out. That said, he never says they're opposing us. He says they're opposing you, God. They hate you. It's not a single nation that's threatening them, but a coalition. Uh, They will be identified by name shortly, but already we're told they're not an enemy, but rather enemies, plural. Uh, There's a conspiracy in verse 3 that requires more than one. Um, And then finally, uh, if you say, well, who are these people? They begin to be named, starting in verse 5. For they have conspired together with one mind, Against you, here here the implication, against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot, which is a reference to Moab and, and Ammon. Now, if you were to take a map and just put a pin where all these countries are, you would find that Israel was surrounded, completely, utterly surrounded. About the only um, exception to that is Syria is a fair distance to the, uh, to the northeast, but they're also the most powerful nation. It was Assyria that, that ultimately conquered the northern kingdom and carried them away into captivity. Uh, in any case, it's a very formidable list. It's also a list that has no particular historic setting. That is, you you can search through 
Samuel and, and Kings and Chronicles and read all the historical books of Israel and you never find these ten nations forming an alliance, ten of them, to go against Israel. There is an answer for that. I, I think the correct answer is um, Asaph is looking back and he's not pointing to a date or a year and saying, on this time, all these nations gathered around us. He's making a much bigger point. He said, there is a never-ending list of nations that hate us. And at any given moment, two or three of them do conspire together, and you do read of that. You do read of one, one people group, one nation, uh, forming an alliance with one or two other nations and said, let's go against Israel. What Asaph is actually describing is somewhat timeless. It was timeless in his day. It suggested that it's also prophetic in our day. In other words, I Israel once again exists as a nation. All kinds of differences, and I understand that. But Scripture, depending how you read it, does, does paint a picture that once again nations will surround Israel and say, we don't want them anymore. May their name be blotted out forever. I kind of lean in that direction because the battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, neither began nor ended with the nation of Israel. Uh, it rages on today. There are alliances today that occur between people who have literally nothing in common except that they don't like God. You've heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It proves true as people hate God and ultimately hate his people and are more than happy to make alliances with those who feel the same. You might question why in the world people would hate God why would they hate his people? Why would they hate his church? It's, it's less common today, but, but there was a time where you would look long and hard to find a hospital that was not named St. John's or St. Mary's or St. Luke's because the church built those. The church cared for the sick. The church cared for the widow and the orphan. The church built schools. Historically, the church has done a lot of good for mankind. Why in the world does mankind hate the church? The poet T.S. Eliot thinks he knows why, and I think he's right. In Courses from the Rock, he actually asks the opposite question. Why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? She tells them of life and death and of all they would forget. She is tender where they would be hard and hard where they would like to be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and other unpleasant facts. I think Eliot's right. The church and individual Christians have been responsible for an incredible amount of good, but they've also been the ones who have called culture to account, to talk about right and wrong, what God says, what God prohibits. And the, the, the world doesn't like that. So that's the situation the nation is facing. There's this ever-changing alliance of conspirators that want to wipe God's people off the map to make an end of them. Um, some of that may be past, some of that may be future, but it's real in this moment in Asaph's life. And that's the context now for what comes next as we go from sort of a description of the problem 
to the solution that Asaph is praying for. And it is a radical solution, at least at the beginning. Verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. I want to point out, before we dive too deep into that, notice what Asaph didn't say. All these people are surrounding him. All these people want to destroy him. And Asaph doesn't say, let me at him. He doesn't say, arm me. He doesn't say, let's raise us up. Just give us swords and shields and God will take care of this. He says, no. They're coming against us because they hate you. God, you take care of it. From the beginning... Psalm 83 has been a prayer for God to act. It's how it opened. Oh God, you speak. Oh God, don't be still. You act, God. God uses means. We know that. He uses armies. He uses men with swords. Um, we're going to see shortly that he uses a woman with a tent peg. Um, but first and foremost, the psalm is a plea for God to act and to deliver his people. The odds are overwhelming, the evil is overwhelming. And Asaph says, God, would you step in? Now, the names that he listed, when he says, would you make them like this or like this or like this, they're probably familiar to you. They, they all appear in Judges. Um, they all meant their end there, and their end to a man was not pretty. For example, the leaders of Midian, they're mentioned in verse 9. They were Oreb and Zeb, and Gideon had them beheaded. It's recorded in Joshua 7.25. And Asaph prays that. He says, the, the people that are currently encircled around us, Lord, would you do the same thing to them? Sisera was the commander of the army of King Jabin of Canaan. Um, Barak and his men wiped out Sisera's army. Uh, Sisera, Sisera initially escaped, and he ran to a tent uh, of a woman named Jael, and he asked basically to be hidden, and he says, I'm thirsty, and she gives him a glass of milk. Nice thing to do, right? Covers him with a rug, and when he falls asleep, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his temple and kills him. He was an enemy of Israel, and Jael kills him. And Asaph prays, God, would, would you do something like that again with these people? So on the one hand, it seems clear that, that Asaph is not seeking personal vengeance. He's not saying, hey, my buddy did this. Would you fix it? Or would you let me fix it? Would you grant me vengeance? But rather he's saying, there's a great evil out there. God, would you deal with it? The psalm continues, verse 13. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. This is important. The, the imprecation just changed from historical examples where kings were beheaded to a couple of similes where there's no blood. Make them like whirling dust. Make them like chaff before the wind. In other words, I, I think what Asaph is saying is make these incredibly powerful nations insignificant. 
no more significant than a little bit of chaff, no more significant than a little bit of dust that are just going to be blown away. Take them off the scene, Lord. You can imagine any number of ways that that might happen. But the point is, it's not the same prayer from a verse or two earlier, at least not the same kind of theme. He started with explicit prayers for death and destruction, um, but now he just seems to be saying, Lord, would you strip them of their power to do evil? The next illustration, I think, confirms that. He says, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. He wants them scared, not dead. It, a, a forest fire in, in properly dry conditions, improperly dry maybe, uh, can travel about 15 mile an hour. That's a four minute mile, folks, and there's nobody in this room, I don't think, that runs a four minute mile. It might be four minutes to the refrigerator, but it's not a four minute mile. Um, and uh, you, you add a tempest to that, you add a hurricane to that, and you've got a terrifying condition. But they're not dead. I would rather be terrified by God than beheaded because there's hope when you're terrified. You can do something about that. Um, Psalm, or verse 16, continuing on. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Shame, disgrace, dismay, those, those are words we don't like. And I understand they can all be misused. Shame can be a, a terribly misused tool in a relationship. And my heart goes out to those who have been on the wrong side of that. But not all shame is bad. The shame that comes upon when your sin has been exposed, and it was serious sin, an ongoing sin, that's legitimate, and that's what's in view here. People and nations that have great guilt, and Asaph prays that they would experience that guilt and shame. But to what end? Why does he want them to look in themselves and say, what have we been doing? We are so ashamed of our behavior. What he wants is this. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. O Lord. Or verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is remarkable. You know what you're reading? That they're surrounded. Asaph and his people have killed a great number of them. The priests are dead. The temple is destroyed. Most of them are in captivity. And Asaph starts out saying, God, kill them. God, scare them out of their wits. God, save them. Make them fear your name. <laughs> well, there's just a gold mine here, I think, of wisdom from the pen of Asaph. And I think that, that this is just a model for both the heart, if you will, as well as the boundaries for how we ought to pray when there's real enemies and real things at stake here. Something needs to change. 
great evil is being done and Asaph is not wrong when he turns to God and prays for God to act and he's not wrong to say we know what you've done before you've, you've killed people that, that were oppressing us God if you want to do that do that we know that you have made them become insignificant and, and had them just leave for reasons we don't even fully understand and God there's some that have come against us where you brought individuals to repentance as well he knows that God can stop this evil by taking people's lives or he can stop this evil by changing people's hearts and I think we're seeing Asaph to say I'm open to all of it Lord and in that way I think he really is um, reflecting Jesus' words and relieving some of that tension because he just prayed for his enemy. I want my enemies to know your name. I want them to seek you. A few weeks back, I did something I hadn't done before. I, uh, I read a prayer from another person, a guy by the name of Scotty Smith. And one of you, I, I, I don't know, no, I don't think you're here, said, that was my pastor years ago. It's kind of a fun moment. Um, I don't, I've never met the man, but I, I love his heart. He just brings sensitivity and courage and nuance to really complex situations. And he wrote a prayer very recently on the imprecatory psalms. And I want to read it to you and see what you think. Heavenly Father, up till now I've struggled to pray the imprecatory psalms. Portions of your word calling down harsh judgment on evil makers and evil rulers. They seemed a bit self-righteous to me. I now realize that's not the case at all. To pray your kingdom, your will be done on earth as in heaven, presupposes a love for righteousness and a healthy portion of righteous indignation. Father, it's all about your glory and your honor, not our fiefdoms and comfort. Witnessing the atrocities, barbarism, and savagery in Ukraine, including the Russian bombing of a maternity ward and hospital, here's my prayer this March Thursday. Father, as you did with evil King Nebuchadnezzar, take away Putin's authority and power. Drive him far away. Plant his face so low to the earth he eats grass like an ox and is drenched with dew. Put an end to his evil making against your image bearers and Jesus' church in Ukraine and Russia. Father, listen carefully now and hear if you don't hear Asaph. Father, either bring him to yourself, put him down, or take him out. You are sovereign over all kingdoms. You alone are God. You alone are worthy of our adoration, affection, and allegiance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you note how he put forth the same three options for Putin that Asaph put forth for the nations that were surrounding and threatening Israel? Now, he did it in the opposite order, which I, I'm just going to take and say, I think that maybe that's how you begin to resolve the tension between Old Testament and New. Old Testament, there was like, deal with these enemies harshly, quickly. We don't care if it's bloody. Transitioning to maybe they need to know your name. 
And here in the New Testament, at least with this particular brother, it goes the other way. Save them. Can't save them, Lord. Crash their economy so they can't afford to make war. And if you're not going to do those, then take them out by whatever means. But God, you do it. Not personal. It's, it's, it's not me looking down upon them. It's not us looking down upon them. It is us looking to righteousness and justice and calling out to the judge of all the earth. You can have, and you should have, a profound hatred for evil, a profound desire to see justice done, and a profound love for your enemy. They are not incompatible. You can pray for God to stop them by making him knowing him. For the Christian, that should be option one. Uh, you, you can pray that, that, that they be made insignificant so they cannot carry out the desires of their heart is option two. But at the end of the day, uh, I prayed exactly the way Scotty Smith prayed. God, change Putin's heart or cause him to call his troops back for whatever reason. There's economic pressure being put on the country. Or Lord, if one of his own men wants to take him out, we will celebrate that because what's happening is wicked. And we are not indifferent to it. This is an enormously complex, complex subject. And let me just try to wrap it up with a few observations. Number one, I begin, I began by noting the tension between the imprecatory Psalms and the teachings of Jesus. We have not resolved all of that, and I understand it. And I, to, to, truth be told, I chose an easy imprecatory psalm, a pretty gentle one. There are harsher ones. So we are not answering every question this morning, but hopefully we have some idea of how to approach them. But I would have you note, under this first point, that imprecations are found in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. They are far fewer. The tone Changes. I fully acknowledge that, but they're still there. Here's one. Galatians 1 9. This is the Apostle Paul. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's one. There's also the Lord's Prayer. Every one of you prayed it. Do you know what you're praying? When you pray, thy kingdom come, you're asking that Jesus return and bring his kingdom into all its fullness. Well, what happens to every other king and kingdom that's been opposed to him? Read Revelation. There's blood. Whether you intend to or not, you are praying kind of an implied imprecation. Thy kingdom come is going to be a tumultuous moment for those kingdoms that have rejected him. Second observation. Perfected souls in heaven can pray imprecatory prayers. I mean, lest we think that, well, that, that's just Asaph's a sinner like I am, and even Paul, I mean, he's not a perfect man yet. Um, whatever excuse we may have to kind of push it aside, what do you do 
when somebody who is a mature saint on earth who gave their life for the testimony of Jesus Christ was martyred, is now in heaven, perfected, and cries out these words, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's not a sign of sin that you pray that God act against great evil. It's a sign that you hate evil too. Which brings us to the third observation. To be like your Father in heaven requires that you care deeply about justice and judgment. It also requires that you are patient and gracious. So you, you, you pray not just one way, but you pray multiple ways. It is no imitation of the Father. It's no imitation of the Son to look upon significant ongoing sin and yawn. God doesn't yawn at sin. He either redeems the sinner at the cost of his son or he judges it on that last day. The church in our day, as in Spurgeon's day, as in Asaph's day, yawns a lot. And I would suggest that we wrestle more than we need to with imprecation um, because we, as Sam Storm said, do not take sin as seriously as we might. Fourth and finally, I quoted Sam at the beginning of the message. That was 35 minutes ago. None of you remember it. Um, so I'm going to read it again because this really is the tone and the heart that I want us to wrestle with. Here's what he said. Imprecations are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. The psalmist prayed this way because of his deep sensitivity to the ugliness of sin. Perhaps the chief reason why he wasn't bothered by prayers of imprecation, and we are, is that he was bothered by sin, and we aren't. It is frightening to think that we can stand in the presence of evil and not be moved to pray as the psalmist did. Let's pray as he did now.